Nothing equals the satisfaction of having God's purpose for your life. Nothing stimulates more than the expectation of hearing our Lord and Master say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We've lost the art of mentoring, the thing that old people are best equipped to do. I think we have to be grown up enough to tell a want that it needs to wait. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour. I am your co-host sitting here with Michael Easley. Dad, do you think being old in our culture today is an honorable thing? Nope. Nope. I think we've marginalized people that are over 55, 60 even. It's it's almost relegated. We're mm-hmm. a culture that worships the 20s and 30s. It's an epidemic mm-hmm. from my perspective. I've seen it in local church. I've seen it in business peer that I have who own companies talk about the challenges of working with younger people, how they view older people in their organization. Mm-hmm. So it leaks into the church. And it's, it's very unfortunate that we have this new generation gap between uh, those that are older, which is an arbitrary term, and those who are younger. When do you think that switch happened? I mean, at some point, being old was honorable. Elderly were seen as wise and important and valued. Well, I would say it's in my lifetime because uh, the way I was raised, it was yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You look a person in their eye, you shake their hand, you speak when spoken to when you're around older people. Um, A lot of that could be considered egregious today, uh, but it's an all about me culture. Uh, you hear me wax all the time about horizontal Christianity. Yep. There's a shift about me, my I, my passion, my dreams, my vision, my job, my car, my, my, my. Uh, n- no pun intended, iPhones, iPads. The whole, the whole notion is it's a self-centric culture that we're now in, and there's just not much deference or even respect. I came across an article very recently where a 20-something is going around. He's videotaping over 850 uh, World War II Greatest Generation folks. Wow. A 20-year-old Love is it. an incredible piece. And he talked about there's no appreciation for the elderly. There's no appreciation for history. Yeah. And this young kid has got a video camera and a microphone. <laughs> He's capturing these 80-plus-year-old people who are dying at an incredible rate and saying their lives counted. Yeah. And so uh, while we don't want to wholesale say no one's doing this, I do think it's a very small percentage of the, of the culture mm-hmm. that sees getting older as a valuable thing that appeals to wisdom in such a way that they respect those who are older. Now, this last lecture that Prof gives really is you know, him speaking to the church, folks that are pastors, staff, leaders of the church, and really challenging them to think about how are you supporting the elderly community in your church? How are you ministering to them? How are you utilizing them to give back with other ministries in your church? So to help us take that to apply, you know, I'm not a pastor or a church leader, so how does what he's about to talk about, how does that apply to me? Great observation. Let's start with our sphere of influence. Who do you know? There are some older people in your sphere of influence, and this works both ways as a senior adult as well as a younger person looking at seniors. Um, can you reach out? Can you invite them to your home? Mm. Can you invite them to a meal? Um, I, I had a retired couple not long ago, long empty nest, grandparents. They may have be great-grandparents. I took them out to lunch just to thank them for being involved in the church that I served, and no one had ever done that before. Wow. And they were so giddy that I'd taken them to lunch. cost me a few bucks, hour and a half later, asking questions. What was it like? What do you see? What do you hope for? So I think if every believer understood they have a sphere of influence 
your neighborhood, the, the, the course of life where you go back and forth, and who are those people God puts in front of you in your weekly routine, and why wouldn't you just grab a cup of coffee? Hannah, when we lived in Grand Prairie, uh, I worked out at a health club. I was in my um, late 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. There was a gentleman in his 70s who worked out almost every day. And, you know, you're getting changed in the dressing room and you're making chit-chat. And I got to know this guy and I said, hey, can we grab a cup of coffee? And he was, sure. Uh, We became friends. I learned stories about World War II, about his college years, about his career. He had a a crazy career. He wrote. he He was part of a newspaper. He worked in the insurance industry. He came back out of retirement helping small businesses. The guy was fascinating. Mm. And here was this young, maybe 30 by that time year old, who took an interest in an older person. Mm -hmm. And we became friends, corresponded when we moved away. He passed on now. But I often think I was enriched by getting to know this older man. So I don't think it's as hard as we make it to invite that widow, that widower over to go you know, if you have a friend, who, their parents live by you and they're not there, yep. check in on them once in a while. Take them some cookies. Can I run you to the grocery store? Have you, have you ever been to a local church? Can yep. I invite you to my church? Yep. It's not as hard as we make it. It's not. Well, let's go ahead and join the last lecture from Prof. Hendricks. When I was a young teen, and I'm aware that most of you have difficulty believing that I was. (laughs) Churches paid scant attention to the youth culture. Aside from graded Sunday school classes, few people understood ministry in the sense of niche marketing. Today we've developed organizations to communicate the gospel to specific age and interest groups. Yet to this day, One of the most neglected parts of our congregations is the rapidly expanding number of seniors. Probably the best kept secret in the ministry today is under the wraps of wrinkled skin and gray hair. The wise pastor understands that this treasure is often buried like a gold mine or a vein of precious gems hidden in the earth. Programs that motivate youth and activate mid-lifers are ineffective with many seasoned saints. Traditional meetings or newfangled worship styles often bypass the real needs of seniors. Should we then consign them to irrelevant spectator seats? Not at all, but we do have to read the map to find the treasure. Listen to the mission statement of one very successful senior adult ministry. They have four objectives. First, to encourage and assist senior adults to receive Christ, to grow spiritually and to be involved in Christian outreach. Second, to assist in meeting senior adult needs of the body, the soul, and the spirit. Third, to assist the families of senior adults. And may I say in passing, this is a missing piece in our educational program in the church. And fourth, to educate the family of God concerning the process of aging and facilitate intergenerational activities. Did you hear those infinitives? To encourage, to grow, to assist, to educate. Let's discuss these connections in two reciprocal parts. Ministry two seniors and ministry by seniors. First, ministry to seniors. No one arrives at his or her senior years without a history, a record of experiences, pleasures, and regrets. Everyone has a closet full of hurts, 
because our world excels in dealing out disappointments. Each one of us writes a different version of what Shakespeare called the remembrance of things past. If a pastor fails to come to terms with transitions in his own life, if he's not planning for his own move into senior ranks, he will probably de-emphasize ministry to seniors. Most clergy have no idea what they will do when they are replaced. As a group, they are sitting ducks for poor transitions. Transition, says Max Dupree, is a matter and a process of becoming a great deal more than change. It is a growing and a maturing and an understanding and wisdom-gaining process. According to the 19th century Scottish preacher and reformer Thomas Chalmers, a person needs three things, never out of date for essential happiness. First, someone to love. Second, something to do. And third, something to look forward to. These requirements, in my judgment, are ideally met in the local church. Three factors of senior ministry beg to be placed on your church's agenda. First, programming. Placing senior events on the church calendar states publicly that you take the theology of aging seriously. The pastoral staff is key in raising awareness of the importance of past events which have affected the congregation. History is vital. Reflect on how the Lord has used circumstances, prayer, and faith in bringing the church to the present. Publicize and magnify the contributions of people over 65 years. Celebrate retirements, anniversaries, honors bestowed, and especially birthdays after 80. Make being older an honorable thing. Raise old age to a place of respect and happy expectations for young people. Make it cool to be old. Possibly the most neglected area of education for senior adults is prayer. We assume that everyone knows how to pray, so just do it. A Bible study tailored for senior adults on the subject of prayer and meditation completely transforms wakeful hours in the night or lonely winter afternoons. For example, compare Daniel's prayer in chapter 2 with the one many years later in chapter nine. Such a study is effectually training an army for your church's spiritual battles. The story of conflict between the young commander Joshua and the Amalekites in Exodus 17 emphasizes the need. Moses and Aaron and Hur were all in their 80s. Moses went to the mountaintop with a staff of God, interceding for his people, but his arms got tired during the long battle. Aaron and Hur upheld his arms, and as long as the octogenarians were praying, Joshua was victorious. Exodus 17 and verse 15 says, Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. But listen to the reason. He said, four hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. And second, what about caring? The second facet of ministry to seniors underscores their most urgent need. Simply stated, it is a search for contentment and fulfillment. When an older person is acknowledged and needed by a loving, caring church community, his or her sense of worthwhileness reclaims that person 
into a ready tool in God's hand. Lift the ministry of encouragement to priority status. Tim Stafford's book, As Our Years Increase, gives useful information about the problem of senility. He says, we tend to think in a rationalistic sort of way that relationships and spiritual life last only as long as our rational faculties do. A confused person may not know her husband, but she still recognizes a smile, a warm embrace, a gift wrapped in ribbons. And for one of our trustees, whose wife had Alzheimer's. I will never forget the impact that I saw before my eyes of that man's love for that woman during that critical period of time. And when I would ever express even a short word of personal concern and love to her, she would automatically respond. He says, a person whose short-term memory is gone may be unable to articulate the gospel, but he still can be moved by the melody of amazing grace. Oral histories which trace God's hand in a believer's life experiences should be a regular feature of a growing church. Teach family members the art of asking questions how to plan and produce lovingly and carefully the highlights of a life which allows everyone to know that Jesus led me all the way. Moses' message in Deuteronomy ripples with the theme of recording personal history. Remember today, he says, that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert. It was your own eyes that saw all of those great things the Lord had done. His formula for prosperity was to teach the children to learn from the past. Now choose life that your children may learn. The promise for our own and our children's success depends on knowing the God of our fathers. We must remember this as a perishable resource, but it is also a great incentive to our elders that we care enough to ask. A third facet is assimilating. This third aspect of ministry to the elderly involves the human touch. The secret to inclusion in the church body is cross-generational connections. While making it acceptable to be old, we must also teach the elders that full citizenship must be accorded to restless children and to self-absorbed teens, and to all those computerized young adults with cell phones attached to their ears. Let me suggest that a kind of synaptic malfunction exists in this most critically needed component of helping one generation nourish the next. We teach what we know. We reproduce what we are. If one generation is to declare God's greatness to the next, we must pass the baton along the generational network. We've lost the art of mentoring, the thing that old people are best equipped to do. J. Oswald Sanders rates as a model in my catalog of elder heroes. He was approximately 80 years of age when I shared the platform with him down under. Let me share with you a story he related to me. On one occasion when I was speaking at a conference in California, an elderly man, hearing that I hailed from New Zealand, told me that he had lived there 50 years previously in a city in which I had also lived. In the course of the conversation, he asked if I had known a lawyer named John Wilkinson. Know him, I replied. I used to work with him. At the end of the conference, he inquired if Mr. Wilkinson's son was still living. 
I told him he had died. Oh, I'm very sorry, he said. I owed Mr. Wilkinson a sum of money, which I have never repaid. God has been speaking to me about it during this conference. I suggested that he donate the amount to some Christian work. God would accept this as evidence of his repentance and would, for Christ's sake, forgive his sin. He later told me he had done this and his joy in God was restored. What a commentary on our Heavenly Father's personal care that he should bring together probably the only two people in America who had known John Wilkinson 50 years before in order that an old man might have the opportunity of putting right a 50-year-old sin. No preaching, no lecture, just a simple story with a penetrating lesson from a mature saint. That's how mentoring happens. And remember that it's not necessarily with the younger person. Many older people have lived their entire lives without the benefit of godly advice and teaching. Seniors need to mentor other seniors as well as juniors. But ministry to senior adults must be accompanied by ministry by senior adults. Never let age be a deterrent in evaluating a man or a woman for ministry effectiveness. Without realizing it, we begin to count the years for more than making the years count. When I ask many church leaders, what is your church doing for older people, they grimace. And I know I've hit a nerve of need. Here are four goals for ministry by seniors. Number one, a sense of purpose and meaning. Keep in mind, most of us in the older years have had some of the starch knocked out, as the saying goes. We have a tendency to lose much of our bravado. We're reluctant to volunteer for anything. Besides that, we're tired. Not a few are jaundiced and cynical. We've seen and heard too much that did not perform what had been promised. We pull up the psychological covers over our head. More than ever, our churches need to take the harnesses off older members and let them roam freely with a clearly fixed purpose of planting seeds of righteousness. A second goal, a focus of mission. Without Jesus Christ, we do have a hopeless end. But with him, we have an endless hope. Disperse older believers into the area of simple pastoral counseling. The counseling load in most churches is staggering. With a minimal training, the wisdom gained from life experience outfits veterans perfectly for the job of building hope into another generation with a value of their own journey. Bob Smith and his wife Pearl were competent leaders in Peninsula Bible Church pastored by Ray Stedman, our graduate. In their latter days, they moved to a retirement center in Santa Rosa, California, where it was my pleasure to visit with them. Bob was more excited than I have ever seen him because of the ministry God had given to him in that home. He played golf and he made it a point to play with every man he could find in order to get him alone and ask him pointed questions about his relationship with God. He said to me, Howie, we don't have much time and so I just tell him, look man, you're going to meet God real soon. Now how well are you prepared for that? He helped dozens of them to accept Christ and to grow spiritually. And Pearl did the same with the women. A third goal, a confidence based on being honored and respected. 
When an older person is affirmed by the church family, he or we or she will easily share the best they have. One 80-year-old gentleman who had spent much of his life out of doors and possessed a variety of skills in the maintenance of buildings was challenged with a need for housing in Latin America. He and his wife now travel seven times a year at his own expense to places where buildings are being erected by their church. He supervises and strategizes with uncommon capabilities as he continues to learn and teach and be fulfilled. The most profound kernel of motivation lies in the words of the Apostle Paul, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Nothing equals the satisfaction of having God's purpose for your life. Nothing stimulates more than the expectation of hearing our Lord and Master say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So let me wrap it up. I've entitled this, The Church's Mandate. Paul's word to Pastor Titus, laboring on the spiritually moth-eaten island of Crete, not unlike our own cultural landscape, was to teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and endurance. Titus 2 and verse 2. But notice, it is both age and gender specific. Older women were to be reverent in the way they lived, not gossips or gluttons, so that they may teach the younger women. The only group Titus was never told to teach. For individuals who are nearing the end of life, the most critical area of concern is spiritual. Help get them ready for heaven. Dr. D. Ken Dykewald, one of the foremost gerontologists in America, after 20 years of study and research on the subject most of us try not to think about, aging, comes to several seminal conclusions. Let me provoke your thinking with how they apply to your ministry. His first conclusion, a new longevity-based era is dawning. Science has reached a new peak in the effort to prolong life. We're being granted an extraordinary opportunity to have more years in which to serve Christ. We may not take advantage of it. We may sit around and watch TV or play bingo or make daisy chains or weave baskets. The choice is ours. His second conclusion, the youth era is over, and he has the data to prove it. Middle essence will replace youth as the cultural epicenter, the center of gravity worldwide. This will not downplay the importance of childhood and youth but it will focus our resources on the 40 to 60-year-old life stage. His third insight is profound. If you want to relate to an aging population, you must target lifestyles, life stages, and physical health, not age. One 70-year-old is starting a business. Another is selling it and retiring. The aging and the aged population are not the same. This fact has profound implications for you and me in terms of ministry. And the fourth conclusion, we must gerontologize the Christian community. All of us, doctors, broadcasters, designers, people in ministry, whoever, must learn more about seniorhood. 
We must make Christians aging ready. So I leave you with a simple thought. There is an age wave coming. It looks like a tidal wave, a tsunami. The question is, are you prepared? Are you preparing? With Robert Browning, I invite you, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made. Our times are in his hands, who saith, a whole I plan. Youth shows but half. Trust God. See all, nor be afraid. We're delighted to have Chris Hogan in studio. Chris is a best-selling author, a personal finance expert, and America's leading voice on retirement. And Chris's goal is to help as many people as he can to avoid financial traps, to invest wisely, and to set their families up to succeed in their future. His book, Retire Inspired, It's Not an Age, It's a Financial Number, is the number one national bestseller. His Retire Inspired podcast now has millions of downloads. Chris is a regular contributor to the Entree Leadership Podcast, a top podcast on business and leadership. Along with speaking at events across country, Chris works with business leaders, professional athletes, and entertainers to help them set realistic goals and navigate for their financial futures. Chris, thanks for being in studio today. Well, thank you, sir. It's good to be with you. I know your schedule is crazy busy. Oh, yeah, always, but I'd rather be busy than bored. Well, I'm with you there. Yes. Chris, we've been listening to a series of lectures by Howard Hendricks. He's with the Lord now, but in 1999, he preached these four messages. They were talking about aging, a subject that uh, I'm concerned about as I'm in my 60s now, and I look at my peer, uh, we kind of knew what to do in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. It was more urgency and Mm -hmm. get the kids to college and get them married out the door. All of a sudden, you're in your 60s and going, what next? They spend time with grandchildren and they travel. That's not bad, but you've embarked on, I would call it a mission, on helping people think about retirement in a whole new way. So first of all, what got you to the place where you started thinking about, I'm going to write a book on Retire Inspired, I'm going to to help people think beyond just this vague date? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, as I've been dealing with money for over 20 years, uh, I'm a former banker, and then I joined Dave Ramsey's team as a financial coach. And so I was working with pro athletes and entertainers, and I realized that, that people didn't understand how money worked. So for me, I loved the light bulb moment of helping them understand the basics. Uh, But I had a gentleman come in. He was about 46 years old, and he was coming in for a wealth checkup, as he called it, and he was retired. And I looked at the paperwork because it said retired, and I said, this has to be a typo. Um, And I said, so, sir, what do you do for a living? And he looked at me like I was a little slow, and he said, "I'm just like the paper says, I'm retired. And I literally had a light bulb moment myself at that time because in my mind, if someone told me they were retired, it was about a certain age, not a stage. Right. And so that was a, one of those moments where I can't, got done with him, and he was about to go travel and do some mission work, some things he was passionate about. But I started to look at things totally different, that retirement wasn't about the end of anything. It's the beginning of everything that you want to do on your terms. But you have to have a plan. And so for me, it was this wake-up moment that I, I needed to help people understand. Retirement's not about how old you are. It's a financial number. So you getting yourself to that number can open up avenues for you to have more options. When you look at a 20, 30-year-old, um, what are they not thinking about that they need to be thinking about? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, thinking of myself, I can remember being in the moment, right? Wanting to have fun, wanting to enjoy life and do some things, but also the opportunity for these 20 and 30-year-olds to understand you can live in the moment, but also prepare for the future. And so really taking that eye up, I'll tell you this, doctor, uh, my, my wife and I, we started making decisions about 10 years ago. We started to make three and four year decisions. 
What I mean by that is we wanted to make a decision today that in three to four years we'll look back on and we're glad that we made that decision. So it caused me to start to look out a little bit further than where I am, but look at the path I'm going and, and where it is I ultimately want to be. Well, when you're in your 20s and 30s, um, I talked to a friend of mine who's a wealth manager, and he said, Michael, my biggest client challenge are physicians because they've been in med school forever. They've worked a long time. They get out with a big salary. They get this massive uh, medical school loan, but they go, I've been sacrificing and living on nothing, and now i got a paycheck, so I'm going to buy the two six-figure SUVs. We're going to buy the big house. And he goes, and then I get them in my office, and I go, if we could have stopped this before it started. Yes. Now, there are some remedies for those couples, but help help this 20, 30-year-old see that. Well, I'm going to tell you, you know what I call that mentality? I call it deserve mentality. This is where we say, I've worked hard. I deserve to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And if you look at it, I think it's this. I think we have to be grown up enough to tell a want that it needs to wait. And it's okay to like some stuff. And I'm not even against people having some stuff. Uh, but I want people to do it with cash because I don't want stuff to have you. And so I would tell that 20 or 30-year-old, take a deep breath and truly understand, really, learn how money works. Uh, learn to understand what it is that, that's the call on your life, the path you want to go. Uh, because stuff can help you enjoy life, but stuff can also block you from enjoying life. Yesterday's new car, today's trade-in, tomorrow's junk heap. So hard for a 20, 30-year-old to understand that. It's a thing, Chris. It is. It's it a is. thing. And it's not going to make your life. And literally, you know what we do? I caught myself with this. Um, I, once I got this thing that I really wanted, it was literally I could put myself on a clock between 30 or 45 <laughs> days, and I was on to the next thing. <laughs> And I thought, you know, this word really started to weigh heavily on my heart, and I had to really check myself. It was called contentment. Mm -hmm. It was literally being able to, yes, I can see and appreciate someone having something nice or that it's there, but it doesn't mean that my life needs to diminish just because I don't have it. Paul speaks about he's been in want and in wealth and he's learned contentment in all things. And I, I, I believe that's in a prison epistle where he makes that comment. And I'm thinking, you know, it's one thing to go from poverty to wealth. It's another to go from wealth to poverty. Oh, yes. And then he speaks of contentment, which you bring up, which in Greek means enough. Hmm. I said, this is enough. And in a consumeristic, materialistic culture, Chris, how do we say enough? I think what we need, we need parents like you. We need friends. We need wisdom and we need knowledge. I think having those things allow us to be able to really take a deep breath and, and, and understand we're working towards something, but I'm not living for those things. Um, I, I'm in life, but the best impact I can have is with people. And so for these 20 and 30 year olds, I would tell you, you're in the crux of life. This is where you're getting married. You're having kids. You've got more stress and pressure on you than you've ever had before. Mm -hmm. And everybody's pulling and tugging. And I think you have to be careful to get those wants confused with needs but above all, to be in control. And if you're married, be united. I, I can't say that enough. Uh, money fights are the top two causes for divorce mm -hmm. in North America. Mm -hmm. And so if we can just get on the same page and understand. Here's I tell people all the time. I had a couple just the other day call me. They said, Chris, uh, we've paid off our house, but, but I want to get a bigger house. This was the wife. The, the husband wanted to stay in that house. And they kept saying, I and me, I and me. And I said, oh, you all have a pronoun problem. <laughs> And they stopped and, you know, they hadn't heard that word since high school, right? And I said, the, the pronoun. I said, you you keep talking about you and you're talking about you. I said, you all need to speak French. And they just looked at me confused. I said, you need to speak we. Not you or me or you or you, but we. And that is the family filter. Putting things through that filter, it helps you to have an alignment of your goals along with your effort. A 20, 30-something, let's say they're a young Mary with no kids yet. What percentage should they be saving? I would tell them putting 15% away of your household income will put you on the path. And I mean that in your 401k and let's and 403bs. And let me simplify this for people because there's so much terminology out there in the financial world. It, it literally can sound like the military. 401k <laughs> means if we were to go to the IRS and go all the way into section 401 item K and open it up, the law says an employer can provide a plan for their employees to save for retirement. That's all 401k is. 403b, same thing for nonprofits, hospitals, schools. Employers can provide their employees a way to save for retirement. So 
I want people to not think of these items as things that are taking their money. But the 401ks and 403bs are a way for you to grow your money using time and compound interest. You know, it's fascinating. Um, and one of my pensions at this chapter of life is trying to encourage young couples to go visit a wealth manager. You don't have to have wealth to talk to a wealth manager. And they're the ones that know all the nomenclature of HSAs and 401 and Koenigs and, all, and rollovers and college savings plans. All this, it's, it's, it's too much. It is. It's too much. So I need an expert. That's yeah, who can say, okay, right now at this chapter, 2030, I need to save 15%, and we'll figure out where that goes. HSAs, we want to fully vest, health savings account, right? Mm-hmm. Tw- you, you think a 20 or 30 should do that? I, I, oh, I think definitely. Okay. If you have that opportunity to use that, that health savings plan uh, as an option, it gives you the money to put away to be able to use for medical expenses, but it also allows you to invest it and save it if you don't need it. Well, and that's what we learned just a couple years ago, I'm embarrassed to admit. Don't ever use it, they told me. Let it ride. It. If you can pay the 20 copay out of pocket, let that HSA cook That's and right. invest it. Because in 10 years, if you have a, a real big major medical event, you've got now a chunk you've of got money. A, yeah, you've got well, here's money. the thing. I, I, uh, I, if you know me, you know I'm not handy with tools. Okay, now I'm big and strong. I can carry things. Right? But if we're putting something together, that's my wife's job. Okay, that's, that, she does details. So if I have a car issue, I go see a mechanic. If I have a spiritual issue, I go see a pastor. Right? Uh, and, and if I have a health issue, I go see a doctor. Well, with money issues, you need that same kind of pro in your life. You need that person that can guide you. And so talking to an investment professional is absolutely important. You want to talk to someone that has the heart of a teacher. Now, Doc, this is what I tell people. The heart of a teacher means they're not trying to sell you stuff. They're trying to guide right. you to help you get to your goals. And a conversation I had recently with a friend who had some bad experiences with a wealth manager, he said all he wanted was my money mm. to invest it. Mm. And I said that's not a wealth manager. Mm. All right, let's jump ahead. 40s and 50s. What does a 40, 50-year-old need to be thinking about his or her money? 40s and 50s, they need to start to ramp up and really get more serious just because these are your prime income earning years. Uh, the, the, the issue is, is your income is going to be growing. But if you're not careful, so can lifestyle. And so keeping lifestyle in check is absolutely important. You can do a lot of things. The bigger question is, should you? And, and that's literally one of those grow-up moments where you step back and you realize, okay, the kids are getting older, probably getting closer toward high school or college, and you've got, uh, let's say, larger monetary obligations coming, potentially weddings, college, things of that nature. What you want to do is start to look out and plan for these things and not let them be a surprise. Don't let it catch you off guard. Let's be more intentional. As your income's growing, you want to have lifestyle to be shrinking so you have more money and more freedom. All right, 60s and 70s, Chris. 60s and 70s, this is uh, where people are really starting to feel the crunch. Um, And unfortunately, if they haven't done some things right, uh, a lot of them can feel like it's too late. And I'm one of those people that if you have breath in your lungs, it's not too late. You've got an opportunity. And so what we have to do, though, is start to look and understand time is of the essence. And so depending on where you are, you might have to look at making maybe some drastic shifts, meaning you may have to look at selling the home. Uh, and utilizing the equity that you've built up to invest for the future. You may have to look at selling one of the cars or taking on an extra job because the goal is this. You, uh, This is my greatest fear, Doc, is that I don't do what I need to do and I end up becoming a burden to my boys. Yeah. And if you can't take care of you and then it falls to family or friends, that's what can happen. And so I want people to sit down and really look and understand it's never too late, but you have to maximize today. Don't let another day go through your fingers without you budgeting, without you trying to attack debt, control your lifestyle, and begin to invest. You, you rattle that off so quickly, and as a pastor for almost uh, 37 years, Chris, I can't tell you the number of older couples that I've seen in that exact situation mm-hmm. And it's heartbreaking yes. because they've worked all their life. They got nothing. Mm. And uh, that taught Cindy and me early on, we're not going to do that to our kids. Yeah. We will not do that to our children. And uh, even some of my peer, my own age group that I that are friends of mine, no money for a home, no significant retirement. I'm going, what are you going to do with health care, for goodness sake? That's right. Now, I don't want to freak people out, but help me. What do, what do we tell these folks that are 60 and 70 upside down? Going to sell the house? Well, if they're, depending on the area that you're in, because there were some areas back from 08 from the real estate situation where you've got, you have some homes that they owed more on it than what it was worth. And that's called being underwater. 
But I want to caution people. Which doesn't people. sound good. No, it's not. It is not good. But I want to caution people. What you don't want to do is to speculate on how much your home is worth. You need to know. And the only way to do that is to connect with a real estate agent that can give you some real estate Cops. numbers. Mm-hmm. Or you pay to get an appraisal done. So let's not speculate. Let's know. Um, if you do find out that you owe more on it than what it's worth, there are some options uh, for you to either stay in it and pay it down and wait on values to come back. Pursue a short, a short sale. That's where you get permission to sell the home for less than what it's worth um, or a deed in lieu of foreclosure, which is a voluntary surrendering of home. Now, I'm going through those three categories, and I, I, don't, I don't want people to panic. I want people to understand and know what their There's options are. There's something for them to do. There's something for them to do. I was talking to a lady. Uh, her mortgage payment, her and her husband ended up uh, divorcing. Her, she stayed in the home with her daughter, and her mortgage payment was 80% of her take-home pay. Wow. 80%. Doc, I don't know how she was eating. I don't know how she was surviving. Uh, she had done it for about three months. Well, wasn't there a time when there was a law that your mortgage payment couldn't be either 25 or 33% of your gross net? There used net? to be, yes. But here's the thing. They qualified for the home as a couple. Uh, he, they divorced. Gotcha. He goes. And she's trying to hold on to this thing that she needed to let go of. And so I was able to coach her through her options. But I want people to step back and really look and understand, just because you've made a bad decision financially doesn't mean that that's the way you have to end up. We're all in progress. We all are. But what I have to do is change a couple of things if I want to get better. I've got to change my thinking, and I need to change the way that I I act day in and day out. Uh, You know, Cindy and I, in our our early marriage, we talked to a number of financial planners and um, your great illustration of a mechanic, of a physician, or whatever, you go to a pro, for some reason that's foreign to a lot of us. Mm. Is, is it pride for some people? I, I think it is. Yeah. I really do. I think we have, typically there are three emotions associated with money. Guilt, shame, and cynicism. Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Uh, that shame is that internal feeling about what you should have done, or maybe you did. But the cynicism I've, I've found as a coach to be the most difficult. That's someone doubting that anything can change. They're doubting that anyone can help them. And I think what we have to do is be willing to be open and honest and talk to a professional to find out, hey, where are we? And typically, uh, doctor, as I've talked to people, they've either not as bad as they thought Mm -hmm. uh, or they had more options than they believed. Well, and again, Cindy and I are pretty intelligent, and we, we went to planners, but only in the last five, six years do we find a planner that said, well, let's step way back. I went in with problem A. Mm. My problem A was I had these college savings plans that were not going to be used. And I knew I couldn't take them out without penalties. They didn't even talk about that for about six meetings. Because they took a snapshot on where we were, like a shock treatment of where we were. And they go, let's talk about some other priorities right now that you guys are missing. Mm. And this this college stuff, this is this is the wrong fruit to worry about right now. Again, the professional. I go to an internal medicine doctor, go to a cardiologist if I have a heart problem. I'm not going to see my country doc, right? That's right. But it, it's, it is pride, I think, for some of us, or cynicism perhaps. But I, I would also say this, finding the right person. I mean, it's like in the, in, in the church world, if you have someone that comes in that's a nonbeliever, we're, we're not ridiculing and getting after them. Right. We're talking to them. We're relating. Too many people think when they go in to sit down with an investment professional or a financial person that they're going to get judgment. And that's where I tell them, you want to find someone with the heart of a teacher. They're not trying to sell you stuff, and they're not judging you. They're trying to help you. And it's okay if you go meet that man or woman and don't like them to not go back. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. Because if you, when you decide to work with someone, they are an employee of yours. So you are the power position. And they're going to know a lot of intimate stuff about you. That's exactly right. So you want to interview, find out if this is someone that you want to join your team. If it isn't, keep interviewing until you find that right person. It, that right person can change the entire game. I'm struck with how many of our friends we have talked to about their planners and the experiences they've had compared to what we have. We've kind of become evangelists for our planner hmm. because he's helped so many people now that we've you know, said, hey, go see so-and-so right. because he really does help you think beyond just when are you going to retire. And, and, and having someone that looks at it like that, that means they have experience. I, I talked to a gentleman. He ended up having, uh, you know, he was a millionaire by the time he retired. But the way that he had invested, he had never, ever spoken to an investment professional. For 32 years, his money was invested. He invested steadily. I looked at his portfolio. I never told him this. I walked through the numbers. If he would have made two changes, he would have tripled his money. And I mean two changes as in the percentage he was investing. 
He had the behavior. He had the habit. What he didn't have was the guidance. Mm. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that his sure. <laughs> one million would have been three. And so it's one of those where I tell people, listen, go sit down, talk with someone, let them look at your 401k, let them look at what you have and get some input. Get some advice. Ultimately, you and your spouse or you and your accountability partner, if you're single or newly single, can make the decision, but at least have someone else's eyes look at it to see what you may be missing. You know, our experience was we went in and um, they said, well, your guy's income is fine. You're getting clobbered with taxes. And I go, tell me something that I don't know, right? That's right. And he says, well, there are ways around this. (laughs) I go, excuse me? (laughs) Excuse me? And they actually liquidated some of our our most uh, aggressive uh, stocks because you're getting, he said, he said, you're paying so much in tax. You're losing the money. You're ma-. That's right. You know, that was foreign language to me, Chris. Mm. I didn't understand that. What, what, let me ask you, as you look back on your career and what you've done, um, what is some money advice you would give her younger you? Well, in, in God's great kindness, you know, we did really well with what we had. We, we avoided debt. We lived under our income. We tried to live on one income. Mm. And eventually did when my wife stayed home to raise our kids. We gave first, we saved second, and our goal was to you know pay off the mortgage. That took longer than I maybe we thought was possible, but um, I, I think probably to answer your question more succinctly, I would sit down with someone like you, another planner, early on, and I would do these things. I've encouraged my adult children go talk to this planner. I know you don't think you have wealth right now, but you got to make these decisions now. Because before you know it, you're 30 and 40. Um, when I was at the church, I saw young families putting their kids, and I'm not anti-private school, but they're in these great Christian private schools here in Middle Tennessee that are north of 20 and 30,000 a year. Well, if you're making, let's say, 250 a year, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. If you're making 85 or 100,000 a year, you got no business putting your son or daughter in a $30,000 a year school. That's exactly right. They don't want to hear that. No, they don't want to hear it. Especially from their pastor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it stings a little bit more when it comes from your pastor. Uh, but you're right. Looking at it, I, I think it goes to, back to anybody that has ever performed in sport, music, or anything else. You practice to be able to perform. Uh, the things you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are ultimately becomes the thing that you do on Saturday, on game day. And money is the same way. The daily habits that you have really ultimately determine the type of week you have. And enough weeks become months and enough months become years. And what I don't want people to do is to get such so caught up in what the world defines as success that they forget to plan and, and become intentional about how they're living for the future. Bring, bring Christianity into this. Bring the Lord into this. We're talking about numbers and pragmatic good wisdom, sound wisdom from, oh, yeah. from believing people. How does Christ look at you and me and how we talk to people about retirement and use of their funds? Well, I, I'm first and foremost, I go back to my pronoun analogy where I was talking about you and my and all this. And I, I first and foremost understand that anything I have, uh, I've been blessed to have. Um, and I'm not the owner. I'm a manager. And that obligation, first and foremost, causes me to look at those funds that I've been blessed to have as an obligation to make sure I'm a good steward with it. And so that's first. The second thing is, is I understand that I've been put on this earth to do what the Lord's called me to do. And what I don't want to do is to put myself in a position to where I can't do what he's called me to do. I want to be obedient. Um, and I understand even in the midst of all these numbers and all this stuff, I've had an opportunity to spend time with hundreds of thousands of people and to allow them to see how I live and who I am and who I trust. And I get a chance to talk with them. And at events all over the country, people will say, well, I don't know much about him. And I'll say, well, I, okay, I can understand that. But I said, listen, what's the most valued commodity in, the, in an airport? And everybody knows it's an outlet. Everybody goes, oh yeah. I mean, you find it out. You got to plug your phone in, your iPad, your laptops, and all that. I, I said, you were going to say a coffee shop. <laughs> well, it's the second one right there. Okay. But I'm like, why, why is that? I said, well, because you got. They say, well, I've got to charge. I need power. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you. I know somebody that is a source of power, and I don't know where you stand, and I don't know what you've walked through, but I can tell you a couple of things. He's not mad at you. He loves you, and he wants you to come home. And so looking at that, understanding the only way to recharge as a human is to plug into something more powerful than yourself. 
And in my world and in my eyes, that's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I heard it er earlier on, always steward, never owner. Mm. And uh, like someone, you know, gave me that little tidbit. And I think this I, me, my context we're now in with my plan, my vision, my investments, my, my retirement, my car, my house, my children. It's not that it's, it's wrong, but it's lopsided on the scale. And uh, I'm a steward, not an owner. Hmm. But it, it's, hard, it's hard in this culture. Yes, it is. It's not mine. Well, if you look at it, I mean, look at the phones we have. iPhones, you know, iPads, and it's, it's inward focus. And we got to be careful there. The other thing that I would say to bring it back to, to Christ is you hit on this with you and your wife and what you've always done first, and that's give. And I think we have to be really aware of the impact of that. Anything we have, we've been given that. We've been blessed to have that. I was encouraged to hear you talk about the I versus the we, because Cindy and I, early on, in God's great kindness, Chris, we, we have this thing Dennis Rainey taught us. You never hold the problem in between each other. You hold the problem over here. So I'm not attacking the person. Mm. And in God's great kindness, we both had a view that we wanted to give. We had nothing to give, <laughs> but we wanted to. And we learned, like every couple learns, uh, you can live on 90% as well as you can 100. You can live on 80% as well as you can 100, yep. and so on and so on for. Because it's it's the Lord's money, we're, we're serving him. And then your friend and mine, Dave Ramsey, taught me something just in the last few years that I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit. I never looked at my giving the way I looked at my investments, meaning I didn't really study where was I giving that money hmm. to. It was a friend or an organization or a missions group that I liked, and he taught me, you need to investigate how they're using their money, where it's going, what's their ROI, what are they doing with it. And uh, so I, my point is I'm still learning yes. you know, in my 60s, and I think we all can still learn. I think it's absolutely valuable. I think it's invaluable. We have to continually learn. We've got to continue to look at it. And you might have listeners out there that say, Chris, I'm, I'm in a tough spot right now. We're attacking debt. I don't have money to be able to give. And I'd say I challenge that. Uh, we, we have $5 coffee shops uh, and all these places that we can go. So don't, don't, don't tell me you, don't, you can't find it. You can tell me you don't want to, and, and that's something we'd have to pray about and you'd have to talk to someone about because <laughs> uh, I know the value of it. But looking at this, I want to encourage people to not only think of giving with money but also your time and your, and your talents. Uh, we've been blessed to do some things. And I know you could go down a list of things that come easy for you, and I could go down a list of things that come easy for me. And if you get confused, you say that you, you think you did it. Uh, if you're aware, you know that you were blessed to be able to do it. And so being able to share that talent with others, whether it's tutoring, whether it's just loving on some kids and boys and girls clubs, going by and visiting retirement homes, uh, we've got a lot of good that we're able to do. And I'm going to tell you something. The giving is a two-way blessing. It blesses the receiver as well as the giver. You know, we've got to the place, and again, it's been fun over 37 years of marriage, 38 years of marriage, my word, uh, that we love to give so much that we're looking for more. Hmm. And it's interesting because we set aside a percentage and we increased that. We, something we did that, again, um, you know, we were too afraid to get into debt. <laughs> we weren't that smart, Chris. We were just afraid about debt. <laughs> but we learned this principle. We increased our giving before our standard of living. Oh. And over all of our lifetime, Chris, we've never regretted giving that money away. Now, have I regretted spending more money on a house or a car or a thing that, I, like you said earlier, 90 days from now, I don't care about it. I got to get the new one. And it was so exciting over the years. We never looked back and said, I wish we hadn't given money to X. Mm. And it's just great to have that partner. And that, I think, also draws us closer to Christ. Yes, it does. Okay, Lord, what do you want Cindy and me to do with this giving? And then when she gets excited about helping this ministry, I get excited and yeah. vice versa. And we often have this, you know, we did this thing for a number of years called a slush fund. And so we, we gave a percentage. We, we went beyond 10. It's not bragging. It's God's money. We went beyond 10 and went up and up and up. And we said, why don't we just set $200 a month aside on top of everything else and just let it sit there. And once in a while, something would come across the grid and we look at each other and go, that's where that's going. You might have a kid going to Haiti for a missions trip or something you didn't plan in your giving. And it's just been fun to play, quote unquote, with what God gives you as a steward. Yes. And, um, but you're helping us retire. Retire inspired. It's not an age. It's a financial number. 
And that's a number people can get to? It is. It is a people people need to be aware of, first and foremost, before you can try to chase it down. And so uh, I get asked so often, what is that number? How much am I going to need? So I developed a free tool at my website, uh, chrishogan360.com. Uh, it's called the RIQ, the Retire Inspire Quotient. And literally what I wanted to do was to boost people's uh, uh, intelligence on retirement. I wanted to boost their IQ. And so what you do is there's three data points to plug in. How much you want to live on per month in retirement and how many years till you plan to retire and how much you currently have saved for retirement. You put those three items in and it'll run it through the algorithm and show you your big number, what you're going to need. But it takes it a step further and it'll show you how much you need to be investing right now to get to that number. Because I feel like if I can increase awareness, I can help people start to focus their effort. And ultimately, you have to decide, are the things that the Lord has put inside your heart that you want to do, is it important to you, or are you going to allow stuff to rule your day? Final word? Final word is this. I don't care how young you are. It's never too early for you to get started and using your 401k, 403b, control your lifestyle. Get on the same page with your spouse. Uh, If you're out there and you feel like it's too late, I'm telling you that's a lie. It's never too late. Uh, But what you have to do is make some decisions, be a better steward, and control your effort day in and day out. Start to budget, get debt out of your life because it's a thief, and start to save and invest. It's never too late for you to get started. We're all in progress. Where you are right now does not have to be where you end up unless you stop. And what's exciting about that, it's fun. It is fun. It's a blast because once you see these numbers and you see these goals, go. we can hit that. We can do We it. can hit that. Yes. That's I mean, this, this may sound stupid to a lot of people that don't know me, but when our planners told us where we were and what we had, I cried. Hmm. It was the first time in my life, Chris, I wasn't worried, am I going to have enough? Hmm. Will it be okay? Can we take care of our kids, our grandkids? Will we be there? And you sit there and go, Lord, living under our income, yes. giving first, avoiding debt, saving, it works. And that was before Dave Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, you know, your, your, your story is a testament to the value of having a professional in your life, but also some principles you and your wife lived, as you just rattled off. Uh, avoiding debt. Well, let's start at the beginning, where it's supposed to be. Giving. Giving first. Giving. You know, if we go first, I'd say it's your love for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Then obedience, then giving, and then living it out. Avoiding debt being intentional, and knowing what it is you wanted to accomplish and knowing that together. And to me, that's a winning formula in life. And I don't care if you're in your 20s or you're 700 years old. It doesn't matter. Those things will help you be successful in life. Psalm 71, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I can continually come. You have given a commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless man. For you are my hope, O Lord my God. You are my confidence from my youth. In this series, no matter if you're in your 20s or in your 70s, what we've hoped to encourage you with is that no matter what your situation, you can plan, you can make decisions, you can make choices about how you're going to face the next decade. My biggest concern as I meet with 20-somethings as well as people my own age is we're not really thinking well ahead about the next decade. I met with a friend who's my age not long ago. He's dealing with cancer. He has very little time unless something miraculous happens, and he's afraid to die. He's fearful of dying. He's worried about leaving his family behind. I had lunch with another man who's been fighting cancer for over five years. He was given 18 months. Five years later, he's still doing treatments. And I met with a young couple not long ago that has a sick child in the hospital. This is not meant to be a depressing or discouraging episode. It's meant to recalibrate our thinking. This earth is not our home. This life at best is a clean bus station. How you and I live today affects the way we experience tomorrow. How we save affects the way we spend in the future. The things we give affect the way our attitude toward gratitude is in the future. The way we treat others and build friendships and relationships are those people that will walk with us 
through the thick and thin of life. My prayer for you is that you will grow in confidence, that you can smile at the future, that you can be encouraged that God has sustained you from your youth to this very day. Your future is, to some degree, what you make it. God, of course, is sovereign, but you and I decide how we live today with joy, with hope, with fear, with regret, with discouragement. Life's too short to be discouraged. As Pastor Don Cole often said, don't be discouraged. Discouragement never accomplished a thing. So put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in wisdom and good decision-making that he will carry you to the very last. You and I want to serve him and cross the tape running full out. And that's my prayer for you. This is Michael Easley in Context. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.